Welcome to the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the Collective Voice of Health IT. I'm Michael McNutt, Director of Education and Events at Weedy. This week, from our Quest for Health Equity event earlier this year, we have Priya Bathesia, Vice President of Strategic Initiatives with the American Hospital Association. Priya discusses how health equity is not only a moral responsibility, but for healthcare, it's also quickly becoming an economic issue that needs to be addressed. Just a reminder, Weedy's National Conference takes place October 18th through the 21st virtually on Zoom. An incredible roster of speakers will present on a variety of topics, including health equity, recent and upcoming regulations, attachments, the new health app economy, the future of digital health, cybersecurity, and so much more. I literally could spend the entire episode going through the agenda and listing all the incredible speakers we have, but I can't. Instead, visit Weedy.org to learn more and use the code PODCAST all in caps, for 15% off our already affordable rates. Sign up as an individual or select an unlimited rate, and your entire company can access the conference. Wheaties National Conference is October 18 through the 21st on Zoom. Register today at Wheaties.org. And now, please welcome Priya Bathesia with the American Hospital Association. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, Thank you to Wedi for inviting me to be here today um, to talk about how we can make the case to address health equity. Um, Addressing health equities is the right thing to do, um, but we are now seeing that addressing health equity is more than just a moral issue. It's also an economic issue, and the costs associated with not addressing health equity um, are immense. So in the next hour, Healthcare disparities will cost our country $9 million. 24 hours from now, that number will be 216 million. And a year from now, that number will be 77 billion. To take that out a little further, the leading study on this issue estimates that for a three-year period between 2003 and 2006, eliminating disparities would reduce direct medical care expenditures by about $230 billion. And for that same three-year period, eliminating disparities would reduce indirect costs associated with illness and premature death by $1 trillion. And if we look at this a little deeper, racial health disparities alone are associated with substantial annual economic losses nationally. That includes $35 billion in excess healthcare expenditures, $10 billion in illness-related loss productivity, and $200 billion in premature deaths. And if we want to look at that a level deeper, here's some data from Texas that provides more detail. For a period of four years, from 2016 to 2020, Racial health disparities in Texas have resulted in $2.7 billion in excess medical spending, $5 billion in lost productivity, a 60% increase in excess medical spending, and a 72% loss in productivity due to health disparities. If Texas stays on that trajectory, by 2030, they will see a $3.4 billion in excess medical spend because of racial disparities. They'll also see $6.1 billion in lost productivity, and they will lose a total of 551,000 life years 
And those lost life years amount to $28 billion. So from these numbers, it's easy to see that health equity is more than a moral issue. And if our country stays on the trajectory that it is currently on, the financial impact will be tremendous. Today, I'm here to tell you that we can not only prevent this, but we can actually pay ourselves back $8 trillion if we eliminate racial disparities in health, education, incarceration, and employment by 2050. More importantly though, if we do this, we'll have happier and healthier communities. So how do we start? We start by looking at value because health equity impacts healthcare value. While we don't have a standard definition of value across the healthcare field today, our AHA hospitals and health system members have told us that we must look at the level of access and quality of care received for each dollar spent. In other words, we should use a definition of value that includes cost, outcome, and patient experience. For the past three years through AHA's The Value Initiative, we've utilized this value equation to evaluate strategies being used by hospitals and health systems. As you can see from this slide, oops, my bad. As you can see from this slide, there are many strategies that are being used to improve value for patients and communities across the country. Those strategies fall within four categories, redesigning the delivery system, improving quality and outcomes, managing risk and offering new payment models, and implementing operational solutions. And while there are many strategies, we at the Value Initiative have spent a large amount of time examining strategies that improve health equity by addressing health disparities. And we've seen example after example of how improving health equity by addressing disparities can lower cost, improve outcomes, and enhance patient experiences. I'll share one with you now. Sinai Urban Health Institute in Chicago launched an asthma program to address the growing number of individuals, including children that were coming into their emergency department seeking asthma treatment. The program uses community health workers to provide education, support, and guidance to empower asthma patients and their families. Because the home environment is a critical piece in managing asthma, community health workers visit patients where they live their role is to reach out and educate individuals and families on mitigating asthma symptoms. They instruct patients how to take medications, including the proper technique for using inhalers and how they can care for themselves by learning and understanding their asthma triggers. The community health workers also conduct a comprehensive home assessment to evaluate the living environment. They stress the importance of proper ventilation, using cleaning products that don't exasperate asthma, laundering bedding, controlling dust, and eliminating air fresheners. In addition, when necessary, they engage a tenants' rights organization when environmental issues are identified that require a landlord to remove mold, replace carpeting, or address other environmental factors in the home. And a majority of the community health workers live in the same neighborhoods in which their clients reside. So they share the same culture and in many cases, similar life experiences. 
In general, patients who are enrolled in this program missed fewer days of school, are more physically active, and lose less time from work. They've also seen an approximate 60% reduction in asthma symptoms and use of inhalers. And as a result of the program, they are 75% less likely to visit the emergency room. They spent 80% fewer days in the hospital and are 91% less likely to visit in urgent care or, or an emergency department. Sinai estimates that they avert three to $8 in healthcare costs for every $1 that they spend on this program. And while we're sharing examples from Chicago, I'll share another. This one shows how hospitals and health and community stakeholders are working together to improve value and health equity. So as many of you may know, babies born within a few miles of each other in Chicago can face up to a 16 year difference in life expectancy. Westside United is a group of hospitals and community organizations that have come together and made it their mission to shorten that gap by tackling the societal factors influencing the health of those living on the West Side. Some of their early efforts um, are very promising. Um, Westside United created grants to meet the community's need for more community health workers and behavioral health services. They've also used local morbidity and mortality data to put together population health strategies. And with that information, the group's leaders have decided to zero in on specific clinical areas such as maternal and child health, childhood asthma, hypertension management, and more. Now, hospital leaders that are involved with Westside United are weighing in on a shared strategy to address those focus areas. The hospitals participating in Westside United are also hiring more and more diverse employees from their own backyards. This boosts the local economy and helps these hospitals fill needed clinical positions. When, hire, when the hospitals hire locally, they're not only being mindful about giving opportunities to those who might be held back otherwise by lack of childcare, transportation, or education. And so to fill those clinical jobs, Westside United also created a medical education, medical assistant education program to help support applicants in pursuing that certification um, to take those jobs. And the program itself covers tuition, childcare, and transportation for the duration of the educational period. In addition, the collaborative is also supporting hyperlocal business development through local purchasing, and they've invested in small business accelerator grants um, to help fund local business growth. So it's pretty cool how they've taken it all and brought it together. Um, and the West Side Collaborative clearly sees the importance of evening the scale in areas that need it most. And it truly is a great example of how hospitals are working with each other, as well as other stakeholders in their community to improve both health equity and value. So those are two examples from Chicago. How do we take on health equity more broadly? So through the value initiative, we've set forth four steps to improving value, and they apply to strategies related to health equity as well. I'm just going to take a second to check the chat to make sure I'm not missing anything. I apologize for stopping. Okay, I can't figure it out, so I'm going to keep going. So those four steps to improving value apply to health equity as well. 
So first, we must think differently. As we look at health equity, we have to evaluate a broad set of strategies and actions that we can take. And to do that, we need to start with data collection and use. So we need to collect demographic data. That includes data related to race, ethnicity, and language, sexual orientation, and gender identity, as well as information about the social needs of our patients. Once we've collected that data, as Dr. Benjamin said earlier today, we can't just let it sit on a shelf. We need to stratify it, analyze it, and recognize the disparities among the different patient groups. And once we've done that, we need to use that information to inform strategic planning, develop programs, and allocate resources. Um, I've included here two resources from our AHA Institute for Diversity and Health Equity that help hospitals um, collect data and utilize it appropriately. Um, at the end of my presentation, I've included a link um, to all of these, um, a, a place where you can get all of these resources. Um, and then I just wanna share a little bit of data from our most recent survey that assessed the field's activities to improve health equity. Um, more than half of the survey participants that responded reporting that they have specific goals to eliminate or reduce inequities in the delivery of care. They also share that their goals are specifically aimed at increasing democratic data collection, stratification, and analysis. Um, these survey respondents show an increasing commitment from the hospital field to collect this data and to begin to figure out how to use it in the future. However, there is a lot of room for improvement. Um, for example, there's so many more opportunities to fully optimize and integrate that data into performance improvement and tra tracking. Um, and right now, according to that survey, um, less than 33% reported that they're actually using the real SOGI and social needs data that they're collecting um, for actual clinic clinical performance improvement. So we are doing, beginning to do the work in this space, but there is much more that can be done. I will share a really great example um, that we're seeing at Henry Ford Health System um, with their We Ask Because We Care campaign. Um, Henry Ford Health System is now collecting real data from more than 90% of its patients. Their data collection process includes questions related to um, Hispanic and Latino populations, as well as Arab and Chaldean populations to adequately reflect the communities that Henry Ford is serving. They've built this data into their electronic health record and they've ensured that they have multiple places where they can gather these data points. That includes when patients schedule appointments um, or when they're registering for inpatient services. They also um, have forms available in multiple languages at their outpatient clinics. Um, in addition, after they collect that data, um, Henry Ford stratifies at least 10 clinical quality and service metrics by the real data in their health equity dashboard. They do that on a regular basis, and then they are able to use that data to inform equity and quality-related goals of the health system, um, and that includes the work that they're doing to reduce health disparities and improve outcomes around maternal and infant health, diabetes management and prevention, and a number of other areas. So that's a great example of data collection and use, but in addition to thinking differently, we also need to be acting differently. And there are two ways that we can do this as we improve health equity and value. 
And the first is through cultural competency education. Cultural competency is the ability to provide care to patients with diverse values, beliefs, and behaviors. And it includes tailoring healthcare delivery to meet patients' social, cultural, and linguistic needs. Really, it's just about increasing the understanding of factors that are important to our patients. And cultural competency has a number of benefits. It can improve health outcomes and quality of care, contribute to the elimination of racial and ethnic disparities, and it increases mutual respect and understanding and participation from the local communities. As an example, Advocate Lutheran um, developed a cultural competency training program. They analyzed their local demographics and have figured out a way to deliver cultural competency education to their teams. One place they do that is at employee, new employee education, um, where they talk about the importance of cultural competence and its implications. They also hold a variety of cultural awareness events for staff. And because they're, of their understanding of the community, they have been able to create a South Asian cardiovascular center which is aimed at educating, um, screening, preventing, and treating South Asian Americans um, who are at a high risk of cardiac disease. So again, they're able to use the education and the information they are gaining from their community to better address health conditions and lead to better outcomes. Another way that we can act differently is by increasing diversity and inclusion within leadership and governance. I mentioned earlier our um, AHA Institute for Diversity and Health Equity survey to the field. Um, respondents to that survey um, from 2019 showed a strong commitment to eliminating health inequities and improving diversity and inclusion. Um, and the 2019 respondents showed an increase in their desire to improve diversity on their boards and in their leadership. Um, and it was at a much higher rate than we've seen in previous surveys that we've done to the field. So there is a lot of appetite and attention to increase diversity. And a really great example of this has been put in play by Cone Health. Um, they've implemented a number of steps to advance diversity and inclusion. Um, they set a hiring goal for their leadership team in 2014, and that goal was to have 30% of their leadership hires um, be people of color. Um, the leadership team surpassed that goal and landed at 35% in both 2014 and 2015. They then expanded that goal each year, and by 2018 and 2019, over 50% of their hires were individuals of color. And they used a number of strategies to get there. For example, they had a diverse selection committee and they ensured that they had a diverse pool of applicants. So instead of just posting the positions internally, they made sure that they were posted broadly so that they could bring in a broad pool of applicants. Um, they had a succession planning initiative, pipeline development. Um, they did a refresh of their training on bias for their leadership team. Um, and they really honed in on making the connection between leadership div um, diversity and community health outcomes. So that is a really great example of how a hospital or health system is moving towards improving diversity within the leadership team. The third step is that we must look beyond the four walls of our hospitals. And this is, aligns with um, a lot of the speakers that have already presented today. Um, and as you all know, I think um, everyone in our field now has seen this, but 
80% of our health is determined by societal factors. So that includes socioeconomic factors, the physical environment, and our health behaviors. And only 20% is actually tied to clinical care. So if a patient is homeless, is living in unsafe or unhealthy conditions, or don't have transportation to get to needed medical appointments or access to food, that's going to greatly impact their health. So we've seen recent studies that have found that children experiencing food insecurity um, may have two to four times as many health problems than children from low-income households that are not food insecure. Um, adults who are food insecure have an increased risk of developing chronic conditions such as obesity and diabetes. And these poor health outcomes contribute to increased rates of readmission, noncompliance, and both of those, among other things, lead to increased medical costs and risks. Um, so therefore, as hospitals are committing to improving health and improving health equity, um, they need to start thinking beyond the four walls of their hospital. And COVID has um, placed an additional spotlight on how societal factors um, lead to disparities in contracting um, and dying from the virus. Um, so housing and food insecure, in, sorry, housing and food insecurity are a particular concern um, during the pandemic. So individuals are also, you know, they're at risk for not being able to pay their rent or their mortgage or losing their homes. And people who live in high density or multi-generational homes are often unable to socially distance or self-quarantine. Um, so we are also seeing across the country a growing number of individuals who are experiencing food insecurity, um, and that comes from a lack of jobs or lost school meals. Um, Feeding America has estimated that food insecurity um, grew from 37.2 million in 2018 to 50.4 million people in 2020. So that's an increase of 13.2 million people over the course of two years. Um, so as I stated on my previous slide, um, you know, societal factors can impact anyone, regardless of their race or ethnicity. But what we're seeing now is that there is a large racial component to who is being affected. Um, Black and Latinx Americans are three to four times more likely to experience food insecurity than white Americans. And the result of all of this is that these individuals are more likely to contract and die from the virus. This pattern is playing out across the country, regardless of whether you're in urban or rural areas. Um, Black, Latinx, and Indigenous Americans um, are nearly three times more likely than white Americans to contract the virus. And the hospitalization rate for Black and Latinx Americans is nearly five times the rate of white Americans. And people are twice as likely to die from COVID than white Americans. So this is a huge disparity that has been um, shown throughout the last year of the COVID pandemic. And so why are we seeing those disparate outcomes? These inequities are largely due to social circumstances. Um, because of individuals' work or living situations, they're unable to social distance, um, which increases their potential exposure to the virus. Um, they also may have higher um, rates of chronic conditions that exasperate symptoms like covid um, the symptoms of COVID-19. So some of those conditions include diabetes, asthma, and hypertension, um, and also systemic inequities um, like racism and community disinvestment 
um, have led to creating environments that exasperate the spread of the virus for people of color. So what can hospitals and healthcare systems do to look outside of their four walls to eliminate inequities and improve health equity? One pathway is to address these societal factors that are influencing health. And we see this play out as our hospitals shift their focus from discussing why we should think about societal factors to looking at how we can collaborate to address them in a way that improves health for patients and communities. AHA um, developed and released at the end of last year a new framework to support hospitals as they take on the societal factors that influence health. And you'll notice that I'm using the term societal factors that influence health rather than social determinants of health. And part of the reason we are using that terminology is because the language that everyone is using across the field is varied. And we've been finding that when you hear someone say social determinants of health, they actually could mean a variety of different things. And so this framework is really intended to put out a common language so hospitals understand the roles that they are able to take and each level that we set forth in this framework, which I'll walk through in a minute, um, sets forth the actions that hospitals can take to improve health equity. And each of the layers are connected, yet they're distinct. And in addition to sort of giving the hospital insight into the roles that they can play, we also wanted to make the task of taking on the social determinants of health, which we are now calling the societal factors that influence health, less scary for hospitals and health systems because many thought they have to take on everything, but we want everyone to be able to see a role in this framework and begin to take action in a way that they can that is best for the individuals living in their communities. So I will start walking through this framework quickly. Just check the chat box really quick. Okay, so at the person level, we are talking about social needs. So these include an individual's non-medical, social, or economic circumstances that hinder their ability to stay healthy or recover from illness. So some examples include um, of social needs are when a person lacks stable housing and is experiencing homelessness, or they have limited access to food. So here, care providers can learn about their patient needs through screening at a point of care, um, which is something that we're seeing many hospitals take on across the country. Um, and the screening is really important because it's impossible to address social needs if you don't know that they actually exist. Um, so these social needs can then be addressed through referrals or providing additional services to patients. A good example of hospitals identifying and addressing social needs is SHARP Healthcare's um, care transition intervention program. Um, this program involves the use of a multidisciplinary team of healthcare professionals um, that go into patients' home to learn about the needs that they have. Um, patients are identified as high risk through SHARP's comprehensive risk assessment tool. Um, and that tool sort of identifies those patients that have clinical and social risks. And then this team of healthcare professionals, which also includes people who are outside the hospital and a part of um, community-based organizations um, assess what those needs are and make sure those individuals 
um, get access to food or housing or education or other things that they are lacking. Um, this is done in partnership with 211 San Diego and members of 211 San Diego are actually included as part of the care team um, with the other healthcare professionals from SHARP. Um, so through this program, they've been able to see tremendous outcomes. They've reduced readmission rates to under 10% for the population um, that has identified as high risk. Um, they've reduced healthcare costs by 30%, and they've been able to um, reduce the length of stay of individuals in the hospital as well. Taking it up um, to another level of social determinants of health, um, these are the underlying social and economic conditions that um, influence people's ability to be healthy. Um, these function at the community level and impact anyone living in, um, in that community. So social determinants can also address food insecurity, but rather than being providing food to one individual patient because they are food insecure, it involves addressing a food desert. Um, or to address lack of affordable housing options in a community as a whole. So housing, um, hospitals have been addressing social determinants in a variety of ways. Um, one of the things that we always point out when we're talking with our members is that um, this is not something that hospitals can take on or should take on alone. Um, so what we'll see is most of the work around social determinants is being done in collaboration with others in the community. For example, Nationwide Children's Hospital and other community stakeholders in Columbus, Ohio, um, have created a program called Healthy Neighborhoods, Healthy Families. Um, and through this program, they remove barriers to the health and well-being of families in the neighborhoods adjacent to um, the hospital. They provide um, grants to low-income residents. They find funding to help build and gut and rehab homes. Um, they have been able to address the neighborhoods in which their patients are living in a way that has improved graduation rates and reduced violent crime. Um, property values in those neighborhoods are starting to rise. Um, they've seen a decline in the cost of care and ED utilization, and they've been able to align this program with what they are doing through their accountable care organization. So really just a great effort of working with others in the community to address a need for housing. Um, in the interest of time, I am going to um, jump ahead let's see to the systemic causes very quickly. So the systemic causes, um, these are the fundamental causes of social inequity that lead to poor health. So this includes things like racism, sexism, and poverty. Um, and this is definitely an area where hospitals cannot solve these on their own. Um, they do need to partner with others to take these on. Um, you know, there are a lot of different policy areas that hospitals can play a role in. Um, we've seen a really great example from Trinity Health where they have become involved in multiple states um, around tobacco use policies. Um, and they've been able to work in seven states to pass laws that require tobacco purchasers to be at least 21 years old. Um, and through that, they're able to show that they're lowering healthcare costs, reducing hospital visits and readmission rates, um, and lowering the prevalence of chronic conditions. Um, last, the fourth area is um, putting the consumer experience first. But given where we are in terms of timing today and what we heard from um, our previous speaker on digital equity, speakers on digital health equity, I'm going to um, skip this and just say that we have been working really hard to develop mem um, materials for our members, and most of those are available to the public that allow them to take on all of these issues um, 
within their communities. Um, in addition to those resources, AHA is um, the advocate for a majority of the hospitals across the country, and we have um, a new 2021 advocacy agenda, which includes many priorities related to health equity. I've included some of them on these slides. Um, and then I'll just end by saying that, you know, this work is really hard. It's not something we're going to see results on right away, but what we have been encouraging our hospitals is to take a big plan and break it into small steps and take that first step um, so that we can start moving to action. Um, and then last, um, I've included a link links here for all of our resources and please feel free to contact me or reach out to me on LinkedIn and I'm happy to have further conversation on these issues. This has been the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast, where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. Find this episode and many more on our website, weedy.org. Thank you all for joining us, and be safe.